welcome everybody to our second public lecture of the year. On the 8th of February we uh, commemorated and indeed celebrated um, 20 years since Diatronic's passing, um, where we had a, a panel discussion about the impact of her life and legacy and reading her work um, in 2019. And today I'm very um, glad to welcome and excited to welcome um, Daniel Reed from the University of Kingston. Um, Daniel is just about, but we won't talk too much about it, um, he's just finished, uh, finishing his PhD. Um, he's looking at murder from the problem of evil, um, and, but he's also um, working on uh, murder from blades in particular, and murder from art. Um, so um, Dan is going to um, talk to us this evening about um, murder's relationship with art. I'm going to turn that off. Um, murder's relationship with art, and um, in particular with um, Blake's poetry and art as well. So uh, let's work. welcome uh, Dan. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's, I had intended to make a, uh, uh, to centre the piece partly around the links with Blake and Chichester, um, but I, I, I came to the conclusion that was going to be rather too difficult. Um, uh, in the interest of Murdoch and making a more Murdochian, I've left some of that out. Although, um, a few comments. Um, this poster, which had nothing to do with me, but is um, brilliant, uh, does uh, have a collection of resonances. The, the picture of Eurasian up at the top ends up coming, um, ends up repeating in Blake's work, especially in one of his later works, Milton, where we see a collection of megaliths depicted alongside it that remind us of the stones down in Stonehenge or in Avebury. So we've kind of got a, a kind of general sense of this that that creeps up. And um, the main novel that I'm going to talk about today, The Philosopher's Pupil, does also contain megaliths, although they're not part of today's discussion. Hey. <laughs> um, this lecture arises from a chapter in my PhD on Iris Murdoch and Evil. Um, my supervisor, Anne Rose, has made a helpful hint to consider William Blake when reading The Philosopher's Pupil, published in 1983. This I did, and I also held them in mind when reading other novels. I found that there were indeed a great deal of references to Blake throughout Murdoch's oeuvre, although they were often oblique, implicit, and fleeting. Unsurprisingly, there are only a handful of critics who have directly engaged with his works, with Murdoch's allusions to Blake, and many, many of them focus on The Time of the Angels, published much earlier, well, nearly more than 20 years earlier, in 1966, um, where, not, where Murdoch aligns one of the main characters, the mixed-race maid Patty O'Driscoll, with quotations from Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. Today I'll be focusing on The Philosopher's Pupil, where Blake is referenced both implicitly and explicitly. The characters within the novel, I will argue, conform to Blake's dichotomy of innocence and experience, and their moral awareness is affected by their ability or inability to accept these contrary states. It's worth pointing out for readers who are familiar with the novel that this will be a limited reading of The Philosopher's Pupil, I will not have time to reflect, for example, on the complexities of the narrative voice, on the relationship between John Robert Rosanov and George McCaffrey, the respective philosopher and pupil of the title, or on the ambiguity of George's actions, or, as I've pointed out, on the megaliths. Nevertheless, um, <laughs> we'll still have a reading of the philosopher's pupil. Before I go on to discuss the novel, however, I want to examine the few of her opinions Murdoch expressed of Blake, and to interrogate her opinion of romanticism in order to draw out the broader dialogue between William Blake's and Murdoch's pictures of morality. 
Iris Murdoch's writings, as I've suggested, display an enduring engagement with William Blake. Her fiction, her letters and her philosophy are peppered by allusions to his art and poetry. He's not only referenced in The Time of the Angels and The Philosopher's Pupil, but also in The Unicorn, Bruno's Dream and The Black Prince. One of the earliest currently available references to Blake appears in a letter to Hal Liverdale, dated 9, the 6th of November 1945, where Murdoch recalls lines from the Tiger, asking Liverdale, where are you now, in what distant deeps or skies? Such subtle allusions suggest that Murdoch knew Blake's poetry by heart. The same can be said of her knowledge of Blake's artistic style, as can be seen in a much later reference to him in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, published in 92. Speaking of Wittgenstein and for Murdoch the problematic dualism of fact and value, she explains that Wittgenstein's Tractatus is more like a definitive metaphysical handbook with its numerous visual metaphors, logical space, the limited whole, inside and outside, looking in a certain light. We might here conjure up something like a picture by Blake, with the factual world spinning as a sort of glittering steel ball and the spirit of value silently circling around it. I do have a little handout which has quotations on it. That quotation is on it, and, and as well a few of the other longer ones. Um, that's by the by. Um, if you've not got one, we can get them at the end. A similar image of hugely coloured, glittering, shining glow appears in The Black Prince. Um, I'd like to point out, parenthetically, that I'm unaware of any coloured, glittering steel balls within Blake's works. Um, I'd be pleased if anyone has any suggestions there. But um, nonetheless, Murdoch's general focus in her discussion of Wittgenstein, which focuses on visual metaphors and indeed on dualism, makes Blake a valid artist for her to conjure up in this regard. Leaving aside the philosophical complexities inherent there, this reference, and indeed all of Murdoch's references to Blake, suggests that she knew his writings intimately. However, while we might assume from these allusions that Murdoch was fond of Blake's art and poetry, the question remains of what Murdoch actually thought of his works. To date, there are only two places where I have found that she critiques his writings, or more specifically, his moral vision. It's worth bearing in mind that the recent acquisitions at the Iris Murdoch archives over the past few years may have something different to offer here. Nevertheless, her first published mention of him appears in a short essay, T.S. Eliot as Moralist, published in 1958, which references Eliot's criticisms of Blake. Her second mention of him appears in a letter to Rachel Fenner, one of her students at the Royal College of Art from 1962, who wrote her dissertation under Murdoch's supervision. Murdoch provided the supervision of this dissertation often took an epistolary form. Murdoch provided Fenner with a book list for which she drew on Bridget Brophy's help, and Murdoch also expressed philosophical and theological concerns about Blake, in which she distanced her own vision of morality from his. These two references to Blake, both the essay and the letter, are, as I will go on to illustrate, ambiguous. By the end of the essay, for example, the criticisms aligned with Blake are largely undermined. Similarly, the letter to Fenner contains certain complexities and inconsistencies in relation to how Murdoch interprets Blake's works. More importantly, outside these two references, Murdoch's opinion of Blake is problematized by her attitude to romanticism a literary and philosophical movement that she often defined herself against. The first question to ask, then, is what does Murdoch mean by Romanticism, and in what way does it problematise her vision of literature and morality? 
In The Sublime and Beautiful Revisited, published 1958, Murdoch aligns Romanticism with the philosophies of Kant and Hegel, whose writings result in a picture of the individual that, for her, for Murdoch, conforms to convention or to neurosis. The individual is seen to be driven either on the Kantian side by the communist and vaguest network of conventional moral thought, or on the Hegelian side by the neurotic belief that he alone is the centre of significance. For Murdoch, the Romantics subscribe to this lonely, solipsistic picture of the individual, and their resulting vision of art condemns the novel to being either a poem in disguise, a small crystalline object, or a piece of informative prose, like a pamphlet or a piece of journalism. Such perspectives are inimical to Murdoch's interconnected vision of art and morality. As she argues in The Sublime and Good, published in the same year, 1959, art and morality are with certain provisos one. The essence of both of them is love. Love is the perception of individuals. Love is the extremely difficult realisation that something other than oneself is real. In picturing individuals either as the centre of their moral universe or cut off from moral understanding altogether, Romanticism, as Murdoch conceives it, fails to acknowledge the value of love, tolerance and virtue. It fails to acknowledge the liberal spirit of freedom and inclusivity and it fails to provide a house fit for free characters to live in. Published a year before The Sun, Blind and Beautiful Revisited, T.S. Eliot as moralist engages with a similar set of concerns. Indeed, T.S. Eliot figures in roughly a third of the essay. Within T.S. Eliot as moralist, though, Murdoch praises Eliot for reintroducing certain kinds of moral standards into literary criticism and for highlighting the importance of ideals and of language. For Eliot, the central problem that literature faces can be traced to liberalism, puritanism and romanticism, which, for him, have inspired an emotional individualism in which every man may now invent his own religion. Those words are Murdoch's summary of Eliot's position. For Eliot, Blake is indicative of these problems. His works lack, quote, Eliot's words here, a framework of accepted and traditional ideas. In being too much occupied with his own ideas, Blake's works exhibit a certain meanness of culture, unquote. The problem here, however, as Murdoch locates at the end of her essay, is that Eliot's vision of culture is too narrow. As she argues, it may be that, as Eliot believes, that the Christian tradition must be the salvation of the West. But to argue this too narrowly is to neglect aspects of liberalism which aren't, put it mildly, worth preserving. Here Murdoch implicitly reverses Eliot's criticism of Blake and his neglect of liberalism, which we might argue exhibits a similar meanness of culture. Eliot is right in criticising the self-absorption of the individual, but he's wrong to discount liberalism, puritanism and romanticism on these grounds. For Murdoch, the ideal vision of liberalism, as she outlines in The Sublime and Beautiful Revisited, is more accurately reflected by the great 19th century novelists, or Shakespeare, who present a loving toleration of, indeed delight in, manifold different modes of being. Here, detached from Eliot's romantic view of liberalism, the artist's, star, artist's task is a struggle for compassion, freedom and love, for knowing and understanding and respecting things quite other than ourselves. Such a moral task is, in fact, one that Murdoch perceives in Eliot's poetry. His writings, 
quote, penetrate our anxious, trivial world with a profound compassion, unquote. And in Merdle's concluding, and for us most interesting phrase, Elliot's imaginative task is, of course, to take up a romantic attitude. Here Murdoch's evocation of romanticism not only mediates Eliot's critical attitude to Blake, but also reinstates the importance of liberalism and romanticism more broadly. As far as Murdoch's definition of romanticism and her first mention of Blake is concerned, therefore, we could conclude against Eliot and Murdoch in Blake's further, in Blake's favour. With his romantic visionary works praising the value of imagination, we can see Blake as a supporter of Murdoch's liberal vision of art, a vision that attends to the differences of others with compassion and tolerance. But this is to anticipate what will come later on. Murdoch's most significant discussion about Blake, which occurred with her student Rachel Fenner, contains a more direct dismissal of his moral vision. Aptly titled William Blake and the Problem of Dualism, Fenner's dissertation was based on the theme of the, of the imagination as a moral tool and contained references not only, to Jake, well, not only to Blake but also to Jacob Bohm, Plato and Thomas Traherne. In a letter dated the 9th of November 1964, Murdoch defines Blake's morality as a form of monism akin to that which can be found in Eastern religions where good and bad blend into a natural unity. Murdoch acknowledges that this, oversimplified that this is an oversimplified definition of Blake, but she nevertheless goes on to argue that her own philosophical assumption that God and good must connect problematizes his monistic theology. There are two interconnected problems inherent in this critique of Blake. The first relates to the ways in which readers, and I'm including Murdoch here, interpret Blake's writings. Is monism an accurate definition of Blake? Do his moral categories blend into a natural unity? The second problem relates to Murdoch's moral philosophy against which he's comparing Blake. And this problem leads us slightly outside my remit today. Yet I'm imagining that the well-versed Murdoch scholar among us will be hearing in her response, will be recalling um, her, her essay on God and Good, where she offers a philosophical argument about how God and Good must connect. This essay was published five years later than her letter to Fenner, and to complicate matters further, she would go on to suggest therein that her own temperament inclined to monism, a remark that seems to align her with her critique of Blake. Reading into Murdoch's letter with Fenner, letter to Fenner, we might conjecture that On Good and God was perhaps subconsciously informed by her discussions with Blake. In the very least, the letter illustrates that she was preoccupied with the relationship between God and good and with questions of monism and dualism roughly five years before her published discussion of them. Leaving these complexities aside, we can turn to contemporary critical responses to Blake's works to consider the first problem, the problem of whether or not we would agree with Murdoch's interpretation of Blake as a monist. For Lawrence Lockridge, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, presents an embattled dialectic that points to a new state of being, one that promotes the energies of doing in acts of wrath and violence, as well as acts of benevolence, forgiveness, joy, justice, mercy and love. 
such a moral vision is less about blending moral categories into a natural unity and more concerned with the complexity of the moral life. Blake writes that without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. The important word, which Blake repeats in early, earlier in the Songs of Innocence and Experience, is contraries. Human experience, and indeed our moral experience, is aided by an inclusive vision that moves beyond monism and dualism. Among the errors promulgated by all Bibles and sacred codes, Blake writes, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, is the idea that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. Here, the focus of Blake's critique is not simply theological texts, but also contemporary philosophical and scientific discourses. Blake often defined himself against writers like Bacon, Newton and Locke, whose visions of the individual, pictures of the individual I might say, and the world left, in Blake's mind, little room for inspiration and vision. In one of his earlier works, All Religions Are One, Blake aligns the spiritual faculties of the individual with poetic genius, with the creative faculty of vision. Man's desires, he writes, are limited by his perceptions. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. Blake's embattled dialectic in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, therefore, highlights the dangers inherent in ignoring the power of the senses and the infinite variety of the world. And this vision stresses the importance of attending to all aspects of the moral life, be they innocence and experience, love and hate, reason and emotion, good and evil. Oops. Here we begin to see the similarities between Murdoch and Blake. Like Blake, Murdoch's picture of morality illustrates the inherent complexity within the moral life and the problems that arise from failing to acknowledge its contrary states. This can, for example, be seen in A Fairly Honourable Defeat, published in 1970, where Rupert Foster's praise of goodness is juxtaposed by Julius King's praise of evil which echoes the revolutionary violence of the marriage of heaven and hell. Where Rupert believes in the dreariness of wickedness and the life-givingness of good, Julius believes that evil is much more exciting and fascinating and alive and more mysterious than good. Evil, Julius asserts, reaches far, far away into the depths of the human spirit and is connected with the deepest springs of human vitality. As in the marriage of heaven and hell, Julius's promotion of action and violence proves not only morally accurate, but also necessary. Later in the novel, Talis Brown, a saint-like figure who is ostensibly incapable of violence of any sort, wards off a homophobic, racist group of men with a violence that shocks all the rows around him, with the exception of Julius. Here, a Blakean moral vision, one that acknowledges the necessity of action, refutes the weakness of Rupert's passive philosophical vision. Indeed, by the end of the novel, Julius has succeeded in demonstrating the inherent selfishness of individuals and their capacity for moral blindness, especially in the case of love. He fabricates a relationship between Rupert Foster and his sister-in-law Morgan, in so doing destroying not only Rupert's marriage to Hilda, 
but also deconstructing his high-minded picture of morality. The novel thus echoes Blake in asserting not only the importance of action, evil and violence, but also the limits of a single-minded vision of morality that focuses on good to the exclusion of evil. Murdoch's moral philosophy similarly invites an awareness of the ambiguous nature of the moral life. Explaining the platonic moral perfectionism to which she ascribes, she argues in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, this is on the handout as well, that life is a spiritual pilgrimage inspired by the disturbing magnetism of truth, involving, ipso facto, a purification of energy and desire in the light of a vision of what is good. The good and just life is thus a process of clarification, a movement towards selfless lucidity guided by ideas of perfection which are objects of love. Platonic morality concerns the continuous detail of human activity, wherein we, be, wherein we discriminate between appearance and reality, good and bad, true and false, and check or strengthen our desires. Murdoch here highlights the difficulties the individual confronts in the moral life, namely the challenge of moving beyond his or her selfish perception toward an inclusive vision of goodness and love. In Murdoch's fictional and philosophical writings, the individual is invited to perceive not only other people, but also the continuous detail of human activity, in which, despite being drawn to goodness, we often fall short of its perfection. William Eastcote in The Philosopher's Pupil echoes this attentive vision when he suggests that at any time there are many, many small things we can do for other people which will refresh us and them with new hope. This loving form of attention, which for Murdoch is expounded in art and morality, links to her praise of Simone Weil's attention of a just and loving gaze directed upon an individual reality. For George Steiner, it is this interconnected, attentive vision that aligns Murdoch with Blake. Murdoch's praise of love and the discovery of reality within morality and art exhibits, Steiner argues, luminous shades of Blake's holiness of the minute particular. Steiner takes this phrase from one of Blake's epic poems, Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion where Blake asserts that every minute particular is holy. This short bit of the very long poem is on the handout as well. Art and science, Blake writes, cannot exist but in minutely organised particulars, not in generalised demonstrations of the rational power. The infinite alone resides in definitive and indefinite and determinate identity. Establishment of truth depends on the destruction of falsehood continually. Here, like Murdoch, Blake draws a picture of morality that highlights the importance of art, the importance of attention, and the importance of checking, discriminating, and strengthening our desires. In this respect, Blake and Murdoch share a neoplatonic vision of the moral life that refutes the overreaching advances of the sciences and the limits of behaviorism and existentialism, locating instead the value of love, imagination, and attention. This brings me to the second focus of this lecture. 
Not only does William Eastcote preach an attention to small things that echoes Blake's, sorry, not only does William Eastcote in The Philosopher's Pupil preach an attention to small things that echoes Blake's praise of the minute particular, but Eastcote is also directly aligned with Blake. At his funeral, the townspeople of Ennistone, where the philosopher's people is set, many of the townspeople, believing Eastcote to be saintly, sing Herbert Parry's famous hymn, Jerusalem, taken from Blake's epic poem, Milton. These allusions to Blake and romantic ideals, however, have a more pervasive influence on the narrative of the philosopher's pupil, which juxtaposes the innocent Tom McCaffrey with his half-brother, George McCaffrey. Tom is viewed by the inhabitants of Ennistone as young, unspoilt, and rather sweet, a set of characteristics that, for John Robert Rosanov, marked Tom as an ideal suitor for his granddaughter, Harriet Maynard. Alternatively, George, who is continually denied by Rosanov, represents the active, creative, passionate energies of Blake's tiger, a figure that symbolises the necessity of experience. Eastcote's sermon, which goes on to echo Blake's critical attitude to the romantic trope of innocence, invites this reading of the philosopher's pupil, asserting the importance of the contrary states of human existence. In the Songs of Innocence and Experience, Blake interrogates the traditional romantic trope of innocence with its ideas of virginity, purity, happiness and divinity. And this is repeated in The Philosopher's People, which contains multiple allusions to this romantic, traditional romantic trope. George's mistress, Diane, thinks of the decorations and trinkets above her piano as magical charms. These little things were proofs to Diane's unconscious mind that innocence existed her innocence, and no one else's. Rosanov similarly views Harriet as a talisman of his innocence, an innocence he needed positively to seclude, an innocence he chooses to seclude in Tom, the figure that everyone in the town views as innocent and praises as innocent. These visions echo the virtuous image of childhood held during the Romantic period. We see this, for example, in William Wordsworth's owed imaginations of immorality from recollections of early childhood, where he writes that innocence is, where innocence is seen as a glorious faculty affording a spiritual, visionary gleam, a high instinct, and a master light of all our seeing. The Songs of Innocence and Experience, however, as attested by Blake's subtitle, is intended to show the two contrary states of the human soul. An unmediated innocence an innocence unmediated by experience, as expressed in the final poem of the collection, titled The Voice of the Ancient Bard, causes a dangerous ignorance to the reality of others. This small excerpt is on the handout as well. Folly is an endless maze, Blake writes. Tangled roots perplex her ways. How many have fallen there? They stumble all night over the bones of dead, uh, over bones of the dead, and feel they know not what but care and wish to lead others when they should be led. Here Blake demonstrates the limitations of innocence. Blinded by their happiness, children can become tangled in the roots of folly, and in so doing, draw others into its trap. While Blake's songs of innocence and experience may fit into the romantic genre, due to its focus on childhood, therefore, 
it does not simply offer a praise of innocence, but a warning that the value of innocence should be questioned in the light of experience. The philosopher's pupil criticises such a blink of praise of innocence. Tom's sense of his own innocence leaves him feeling unscarred and harmless. To use Rosanov's definition of Father Bernard's Christianity, Tom regards himself as excused, as innocent, as simul justus et peccator, as righteous and at the same time a sinner. Tom's blind, innocent, flippant attitude leads to a collection of mistakes where he insults Harriet and later inadvertently invites, with both comic and disastrous consequences, the entire cast of a play to Harriet's home. The party results in a public scandal and its discussions in local newspapers incite Rosanov's anger because it reveals his secret plan for Tom and Harriet to marry. Rosanov's denial of Tom becomes a catalyst for moral change and Tom's descent into the basement of Ennestone's Roman baths following Rosanov's denial of him represents a frisson with the Blakean, Blakean, Blakean passionate energies symbolised by his half-brother George. Such a reading is invited by William Eastcote, whose sermon not only praises an attention to the Blake in minute particular, but also highlights the importance of acknowledging innocence, as well as one's capacity for evil. This quotation is also on the handout. Let us prize innocence, Eastcote argues. The child is innocent, the man is not. Let us prolong and cherish innocence of childhood. Repentance, renewal of life, such is the task and possibility of every man, is the recovery of innocence. Let us see in this return, it let us see in this a return to a certain kind of simplicity, not a remote good, but very near. Above all, do not despair, either for the planet or in the, for the deep inwardness of the heart. Recognise one's evil, mend what can be mended, and for what cannot be undone, place it in love and faith in the clear light the healing goodness of God. While the beginning of Eastcote's sermon replicates a traditional romantic praise of innocence, his conclusion provides a Blakean antidote. We must recognise our moral limitations, as Eastcote asserts, and acknowledge our capacity for evil alongside the simple goodness of innocence. At this point in the novel, Tom is reassured by the romantic praise of innocence in Eastcote's sermon admitting, I'm innocent, I'm good, I love everybody, oh, I'm so happy. Unlike Tom, the eight-year-old Adam, Tom's half-nephew, does appreciate the Blakean moral lesson inherent in William's sermon. He, re- he notes, I must be kinder to my father and talk to him and not tease him. Although Harriet does not hear Eastcote's sermon, she also exhibits a similar moral awareness. The narrator explains that her only positive feeling was a sense of her own innocence. She had not yet become bad as so many people, as she knew, became. Evil, that too, was part of the white blankness of the future. Here, like Adam, Harriet exhibits the kind of Blakean awareness propounded in Eastcote's sermon. Adam acknowledges the necessity to refine his attention to others. Like Harriet, he acknowledges his capacity for evil. And in so doing, both characters acknowledge the tension between the contrary states of the moral life, be they innocence and experience, or good and evil. 
Tom's moral failures within the philosopher's pupil arise from his unmediated romantic vision of innocence. In his continuous praise of fun and happiness, he fails to reflect on his own behaviour and the impact it has on those around him. When first meeting Harriet, for example, Tom was aware of having made a number of blunders. However, instead of reflecting on himself, he simply wonders, has she no sense of humour, no sense of fun? Why is she cross with me? These blunders are largely the result of his and Harriet's nerves on the occasion of their first meeting. But Tom's behaviour, more often than not, revolves around the fun he can have. This ignorant attitude flourishes towards the end of the novel when, hoping to atone for his earlier rude behaviour towards Harriet, he drunkenly invents a fictitious party as an excuse to visit her, to which the entire cast of a play follow him. When Rosanov interrogates Tom for the resulting scandal, he refuses to acknowledge responsibility. Tom argues that it was all perfectly innocent, that he didn't know what he wanted to achieve in seeing Harriet because he was drunk, that it was an unintentional mistake, and finally, that it was just a lark. Like the children in Blaine's The Voice of the Ancient Bard, Tom's inability to consider the practical and moral implications of his actions arises from the endless maze of his innocence. He is so perplexed by fun, joy and happiness that he fails to acknowledge those around him. Where Tom is aligned with innocence, his half-brother George is aligned with the tiger, a poem that illustrates the importance of experience. George quotes Blake's poem in response to his mistress Diane, who asks him to sit beside her and hold her hand. He replies, I can't. I'm too restless. Tiger, tiger, burning bright. The imagery that Murdoch uses to portray George continues this, allusions to, this allusion to Blake's tiger. The narrator suggests that George has an amused and quizzical cat-like look and describes his face as being rather round with a rather short nose and a small square set, set of teeth set on a wide arc. He is described as padding and pacing, he is even once described as loping on dark paws. And George's wide apart brown eyes are lighted, seeming to burn with the same intensity as Blake's tiger. These conventional images of a tiger, of a cat-like round face, padding paws and bright, sharp, fiery eyes, suggest that George is dangerous, a restless figure capable of violence. The tiger, however, not only echoes Blake's earlier work, All Religions Are One, with its praise of creative spiritual energy, but also foreshadows the apocalyptic tones of the marriage in heaven and hell, which supports an active acceptance of violent, revolutionary and passionate energies. Blake's poem debates whether or not such vitality can be captured, asking what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. I've put the Blake poem on the handout right at the end, but I'm not quoting the whole thing. <laughs> the end of the poem, by the end of the poem, the narrative voice corrects this question, could, thy fear, could one frame thy fearful symmetry, to dare we fear the tiger's fearful symmetry. For Blake, such caging, framing or limiting acts represent a moral vice. To deny the active, creative, passionate energies of the tiger is to deny not only the contrary state of human experience, 
but also our artistic, religious, visionary faculties. It's to deny the holiness of the mind in particular. In the philosopher's pupil, Murdoch aligns these energies not only with George, but also the Roman bars of Ennestone. The bars are described more than once by the narrator as a hedonistic place, whose waters are rumoured to have an aphrodisiac effect, reported to make people feel a sexual thrill on entering them. The spring's hot jet is connected to the town's restless sensationalism, something almost superstitious. George himself notices his connection to the bars, which seems so in tune with his own heartbeats and the vibration of his whole taut being. Like the spring, made restless with the pressured heated waters, George's evil actions and his own restlessness can be attributed to his inability and the inability of those around him to acknowledge, express and understand the energy symbolised in his taut being or held within his taut being. Tom's reaction to his banishment of Ennestone by Rosanov leads to an acknowledgement of these active, creative, passionate energies. Tom begins to feel ill when he reflects on having incited Rosanov's anger, brought about by the flippancy with which he discussed the party. His feelings of guilt and remorse, as the narrator explains, were Tom's first experience of demons. Demons, like viruses, live in every human organism, but in some happy lives, never become active. Tom was now aware of his demons and that they were his demons. Tom's descent into the subterranean depths of Ennestone's bars represents a, sub, a subconscious acknowledgement of these demons and a conscious acknowledgement of these demons. Now, after experiencing Rosanov's denial, he wanted mountains of time, mountains of experience to divide him from those dreadful events. Driven by something alien, by the need to do something difficult and awful and perhaps fatal, Tom seeks Rosanov at his room in the bars. And this quotation, long quotation, is on the handout as well. Tom was in a restless state. Was, Tom was in a state of restless, obsessive, nervous energy. What he needed was some sort of symbolic or magical act. Tom took a few careful, noiseless steps through the empty, silent, half-dark promenade. A flood of excited physical fear took possession of the lower part of his body. A painful, vertiginous, thrilling, urgent, pressuring feeling like sexual desire. Then Tom thought, it's not like sexual desire, it is sexual desire. He moved quickly now, his mouth open, his eyes wide. He padded on his toes toward the source of the light, which was the partly open door of the baptistry, which housed the descent to the source the descent to the source of the bars and the spring. Here, Tom calls upon, and indeed experiences, the Blakeian energies aligned with George. Tom's eyes are wide, he pads through the halls, and he is driven by a restless, obsessive, nervous energy. It is only after his engagement with, these Blakeian, with this Blakeian experience that he is able to return to Harriet with conviction rescuing her, as it turns out, as we discover, from the grasp of her grandfather, Rosanov, who has announced his love for her. Until this point, masqueraded by his innocent happiness, Tom's continued wrongdoing 
has caused his inability to acknowledge his demons. His descent into the bars, however, represents an engagement with the contraries of innocence, with the contrary of innocence, with the active, creative, passionate energies of experience. And this engagement allows him to understand his capacity for evil and the necessity for action. Murdoch's juxtaposition of Tom's innocence with George's experience in the philosopher's people highlights the importance, as Blake illustrates in Songs of Innocence and Experience, of acknowledging the tension between the contrary states of human existence. Like Blake, Murdoch does not envision innocence and experience as fixed dualist concepts where innocence is good and its opposite experience is evil. Indeed, Tom's blind innocence, unmediated by experience, results in varying degrees of evil, causing both him and those around him to suffer. And it's only once Tom has acknowledged the presence of his demons and the value of experience that he can move beyond his blind innocence. For Murdoch, then, like Blake, the contrary states of human existence, be they good and evil, innocence and experience, love and hate, must be acknowledged. This Blakean reading of Murdoch has important consequences for the way in which we view Murdoch's fictional not only Murdoch's fictional picture of evil, but also her moral philosophy more broadly. Many of her evil characters, sometimes referred to as enchanter figures, exhibit the same kind of restlessness as George. They may even, as Julius King in A Fairy on Board Feet, offer a praise of violence that echoes the marriage of heaven and hell. If we are to see these characters as representations of Blake in contraries, however, we should not altogether dismiss their moral vision. Indeed, as Peter Conradi argues, it is often through her evil characters, through her demons, that Murdoch attacks portentousness and false seriousness, reminding us of the importance of attention, an attention not only to each minute particular, to each person, but also to the ambiguity of the moral life. Evil, as Murdoch argues in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, may have to be lived with, but it remains evil, and we live too with the real possibility of improvement. Far from being negative, this vision represents an engagement with the continuous Blakean detail of human activity, wherein we discriminate between appearance and reality, good and bad, true and false, and check or strengthen our desires. Ultimately, as Father Bernard tells George in The Philosopher's Pupil, we are frail creatures. All our good is mixed with evil. It is good nonetheless. Mm -hmm.